Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the head of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. It's headquartered in Columbus. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Clay Gordon covers a number of topics, including the recent Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and how it's affecting potential prosecutions and how local churches are dealing with the decision. The issue of affordable housing in Columbus and a visit with a former football coach in London, Ohio, who was embroiled in controversy 20 years ago for praying with his players. That's an issue the U.S. Supreme Court sided with this month in a similar case in Washington State. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Kayla Griffin, the state director of All Voting is Local, talking about the second round of Ohio's primary election, which happens August 2nd, with early voting now underway. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Rita Sorenen, who is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. How are you? I'm great. It's great to talk with you. Nice to talk to you. This is a a foundation probably everybody uh, has heard of, and and most people around here may be not surprised to know that it's a local effort. I mean, it's a nationwide, even beyond that, but uh, it started locally. That's absolutely right, and we're, we're located in Columbus, Ohio, and um, are close to celebrating our 30th anniversary of, of being in place. But we do. We have a nas- national reach. But um, we were created by Dave Thomas, who I think most everyone in Ohio still recognizes as the founder of um, that iconic Wendy's brand. And Dave Thomas was adopted. So as he was nearing the end of his active professional career at the Wendy's company, he wanted to put in place something that really carried out their focus of um, helping and reaching out to communities in which they had business. And because he was adopted, that had a, a, a tie to thinking about starting a, a national nonprofit public charity that was dedicated exclusively to adoption, but even more than that, foster care adoption, those children who were in foster care waiting to be adopted. So, yes, we, we were created locally. We have a, a profound arm-in-arm relationship with uh, the Wendy's company still, their franchisees and corporate and, and suppliers, um, but we're wholly independent and have a, a national, in fact, international reach. We have the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada as well. And Dave Thomas, he's been gone about 20 years now, but it was a remarkable story with him because you see all these, for lack of a better word, pitchmen or women for, you know, like insurance companies or whatever. He was the public face of Wendy's, but not just some character actor. I mean, he was the guy that started the whole thing. He was the guy that started the whole thing, so really has two profound legacies, right? An international global brand, um, those square hamburgers and frosties that that everybody loves, but then this this legacy of creating a foundation that that said we have to do more for the most vulnerable in our community. Um, And we're just honored and proud every day to, to be able to carry on this story of someone who, he was adopted as an infant, but his adoptive mother passed away when he was young. His, uh, his adoptive father was a bit of an itinerant worker, so moved from place to place. He was reared by his, his grandmother many uh, much of his life and, and left home at age 16 to strike out on his own. So really understood, I think, very organically the story sometimes of our older youth who are in foster care, who move from home to home, who too often have to make it out on their own. Very much understood that, that, that tone of 
how do we do better on behalf of some of our most vulnerable children? So it's an incredible story. It's an incredible success story. The, the family is still connected to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption as members of the board and just supporters um, as franchisees. So it's a, it's, a, it's a unique and I think really powerful uh, American story. As you mentioned, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption has been around for 30 years, and you're in the middle of kind of a growth spurt right now, right? We are. We've we've been able, both through the, the fundraising that the franchise, significant fundraising in the restaurants that the franchisees do for us, and then attracting other donors, um, we've been able to really look at where can we make sure that um, we're doing the best that we can do for a particular group of children in foster care, and that's those children who are most at risk of turning 18 in foster care and leaving without the family we promised. Uh, understand these are children who are in care because they've been abused or neglected and for right now 117,000 children across the nation and about 3,000 children across Ohio um, that abuse rose to such a level that the courts permanently severed the families the birth families right to that child so they're legal orphans waiting for families to step forward and adopt of course we believe that children belong in their families of origin and we want to work very hard to keep them there or at least keep them connected to family and community But for too many of these children, children in sibling groups, teenagers, children with special needs, that movement to an adoptive home becomes compromised. Um, And about 20,000 children every year turn 18 and leave foster care without a family. So we've focused our programs on that very vulnerable population of children. We know what can happen to them if they leave without a family. If you just think about the risk of growing up without that safety net of of family, they're more at risk of being homeless, of being undereducated, underemployed, all those negative outcomes, not because they're bad kids because they don't have a safety net of family. So we've focused our program on um, creating an evidence-based program that we can give our resources, we're a grant-making organization, to private, large or small, all across the United States and certainly here in Ohio, to hire full-time adoption professionals that use this evidence-based model that works very successfully on behalf of that that at-risk population of children, at-risk of aging, out of care. And we've seen great success across the nation and have been able to to build our growth based on that success and based on the need uh, across the United States. And from what I understand, these are people that are recruiting foster parents, and you kind of drill down into the kid's life and find out much more about their circle and what makes them tick to match them up with foster parents. That's exactly it. So we give a grant to an agency or multiple grants to hire a a full-time adoption recruiter, and then they focus on a very small caseload of the longest waiting children in that community. But this magic sauce behind this is that, right, they do a deep dive into the child's case file. They talk, they develop a relationship with the child. And so they learn both from the child and from the case file where extended family members might be that could um, uh, step forward and adopt aunts or cousins or, or brothers and sisters, frankly, that are that are old enough to do so. Um, and then they also look at who in this child's community um, with whom the child is already connected might be willing to adopt. So former foster parents or teachers or best friend families. We have so many examples of, of people within the child's community. The last thing we want to do is further traumatize the child and, and you know, send them away from their community or with strangers. Of course, if we can't find someone within those circles, then we'll move to that next level of people who have stepped forward in the foster care system and said, I'd be willing to adopt a child from foster care. But it's a very successful program at finding that all of those people who are already 
already connected to this child and makes it perhaps the, maybe an easier transition um, from foster care into an adoptive home. Talking with Rita Sornan, she's president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. You've been there for 20 years, and before that you were the executive director of court-appointed special advocates for Franklin County. Uh, so in a way, kind of a similar role in the in the sense that you were so involved in some of these kids' lives who were trying to find a better way forward. Exactly. You know, my journey and, and professional journey has been, I, I've been so lucky, so blessed, because I actually, before the CASA program, I started out in child abuse prevention. So how do we, how do we make sure that um, children don't come into care, families don't come into care? How do we provide the kinds of supports that families need? But when that fails, and they are part of this um, juvenile justice child welfare system, then how do we provide through court-appointed special advocate programs, best interest um, guardians ad litem and professional CASA volunteers that can speak up for the child in court? And then I was there about a decade and, and had the opportunity to move here. And so what happens when prevention efforts fail, when our intervention efforts through um, the CASA program um, moves them toward being available for adoption, then this became, for me, I think, a pretty much the full circle of how do we make sure that, that we have the family, available, that we find the families for these children um, as quickly as possible. They shouldn't linger in care. They shouldn't move from home to home. They shouldn't age out of care without a family. So, yes, it's, it's been an incredible journey for me and one that I've been able to learn every step of the way. I think um, what are the dynamics, what are the gaps, where are the needs in the system that we can make better, hopefully, on behalf of children and families. What has happened to the foster care and adoption world in the era of the pandemic? Oh, gosh. You know, listen, our kids suffered during the pandemic for lots of reasons. They've already come into care with traumatic events in their life or further trauma by being moved multiple times or living in, in group homes or institutional care. And so, you know, they were at risk of COVID to begin with just because their their, their physical systems might be compromised, right? But then um, um, they were further separated from um, all of those connections perhaps that they had, particularly when we were in lockdown, so that families couldn't make visits, um, social workers couldn't see them directly, um, or if they were in institutional care or group care, they were, again, at much more risk of exposure to COVID. And depending on where they lived, if school went um, virtual, you know, if they didn't have real solid um, internet connections, then their, their education was compromised. So many intervening factors that we couldn't have imagined pre-pandemic. The good news is, for the Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiters, we very quickly pivoted to a virtual environment so that we said, you have to stay in touch with these children. Um, you have to figure out a way and if you can connect with them virtually great do that as frequently as you can if it's only by phone connect with them by phone but our recruiters got really creative and they would drop lunch off and then sit in the car and they on the phone talk to each other while they were eating lunch so they still kept that connection going we also advocated in ohio and across the nation for governors or child welfare agencies to not let children age out of care during the pandemic because could you imagine leaving care during a pandemic when getting a job was compromised, when finding housing was compromised, and you were all on your own? So the pandemic really built layers and layers of challenges for our kids in foster care. 
we hoped we did as much as we could to, to make to mitigate against those challenges. Um, and and now, you know, we're beginning to see more kids perhaps coming into care because those reports of abuse went down during the pandemic, but we may be seeing more kids coming into care um, across the nation as well now. And just to give folks an idea of how huge of an effort this is, last year the foundation dedicated more than $40 million in grants to programs for these uh, recruiters and, and other programs that you're associated with. That's right. We, we see ourselves as uh, making sure that we get as many dollars in the door as possible so that we can send those dollars right back out and support these recruiters. And so what we've been able to do in many states is take this program to scale. And what that means is, based on the number of children who are waiting to be adopted, um, can we get the appropriate number of recruiters in place to serve those children? And it becomes a, a really unique public-private partnership that we can upfront philanthropy and say, here, let's get this program scaled quickly. If a state, for example, needs 30 recruiters in order to serve that focused population, we'll upfront the cost to get those recruiters in place, but the state or the county has to make a co-investment, a small one at first, but an increasingly larger one as we begin to see over the years those numbers of children waiting to be adopted declining, and the state begins to see essentially a, a return on investment. So it's their moral and legal obligation first and foremost to get these children adopted, but if we can provide that financial incentive first through upfront funding and then showing that return on investment, then it's a win-win all around and making sure that these children have permanent homes. So yeah, we we make sure, and and again, it's called Wendy's Wonderful Kids, the program we're talking about, because our Wendy's partners really did that lion's share of that initial and and ongoing uh, fundraising for us in restaurants, selling coupons to customers, doing all kinds of programs to help support this program in Ohio and across the nation. Talking with Rita Sornan, president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. I know that you recently did uh, an adoption attitudes survey to find out what people think about adoption and foster care. And I'm wondering about that and also just about businesses and incentives. You know, it's it's getting harder for businesses to keep people in this post-pandemic time. And I'm wondering how that fits into all this. Those are great questions, and, and indeed, every few years, we take a pulse of, of the nation and find out what are the general attitudes about children in foster care, about the system, uh, you know, what is it that perhaps are barriers to folks stepping into the child welfare system to consider fostering or adopting. So the only way we can really get a, a real good handle on that is to understand their attitudes. So we've got a number of years, I think this was the fifth time that we've done this this national survey, so we've got some good benchmarking numbers. And we found some really positive, I think, results this time, that 37% of Americans have considered adopting. And that's up 12% from the last time we did this survey, a significant increase. And of those people who have considered adopting, 82%, and again, this is consideration, have considered foster care adoption as their as a choice for adopting, and that increased by about 3%. Of course, there are other kinds of adoption, private, infant, and international, and, and we, we pulse those as well, but we want to make sure that what we do, which is to dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of foster care, that we take that pulse on foster care adoption. A couple of more key points that 75% of Americans believe we should be doing more. We, the collective community, we should be doing more to encourage foster care adoption. Again, up a significant 11 percentage points, and 67% of Americans believe that every child is adoptable. So all, all really good news. But, but honestly, Dave, we still have some work to do because 
we know that the majority of Americans, so 60%, prefer thinking about adopting a child age five or younger, which is, you know, I understand that. You know, people think about bringing a child into their family and they want to be able to sort of mold them into the tone of their family. Um, but the reality is the average age of a child waiting to be adopted out of foster care is eight or hovering right around nine years old. Um, and only 3% prefer uh, to think about uh, adopting a child age 13 or older when we've got a lot of teenagers in the foster care system. So our job is to make sure that folks understand that older youth are waiting to be adopted, that there are lots of families that might be thinking about adopting, but they don't necessarily want an infant, and that, that you know, older youth, and by older we mean, again, age eight or older, are waiting to be adopted. The one number that drives me um, to distraction, and, and we really want to work really hard on this every year, keeping in mind that children are in foster care because they've been abused or neglected or abandoned through no fault of their own, but 51% of Americans believe that teenagers are in care because they're juvenile delinquents, because they've done something wrong. So we've got to do some more work to make sure that folks understand the trauma these children have experienced, some emotional or behavior challenges that they may have as a result, but that they deserve as much as any other child a safe and permanent home. So we like to keep track of those numbers. Again, we feel good, but we've got a lot of work to do. And you're right, the question about businesses, it, it plays into this nicely because if we're going to encourage people to adopt, we also have to make sure that they have both the financial and, and the, the emotional and the physical resources to support them in that adoption. And for another a signature program of Dave Thomas, when he was still CEO, he very organically started this notion by talking to other CEOs saying, do you provide benefits to families that are formed through birth in your workplace? And of course, the majority of them said yes. And, and then he would follow up with, well, do you provide benefits to families that are formed through adoption? And he started this campaign of really thinking about parity and equity in the workplace for all families, not just families that are formed through birth. We've taken that on and made it another signature program and every year release a 100 best adoption friendly workplace list so that we encourage um, employers to add um, financial benefits for families who adopt, paid leave or unpaid leave, just acknowledge that families who adopt need that same kind of support. And what we know is that it really engenders a sense of loyalty, a sense of commitment to an organization. We even know from talking to potential employers that if they have the choice between two businesses, one has adoption benefits and one does not, they're more likely to pick that, that business with adoption benefits, even if they're not thinking about adopting, it says a lot about the family-friendly nature of the business. So we've got, we actually have a survey that we take every year that, that any business can be a part of. Um, that survey is open now on our website, davethomasfoundation.org, and it's open until I think August 5th, where employers can put, here's what their benefits are, and, and we continue to collect this, this robust database of employers, but then they can become part of that 100 uh, best adoption-friendly workplace list that we published nationally in October and recognizes um, um, uh, employers that do provide these benefits. Well, with over 100,000 kids waiting in the foster care system for a home, it, it seems like, you know, between business incentives and, and federal government incentives with tax breaks and such, that that's a huge element. You would imagine that the 37% of families that you mentioned that, are, that have thought about doing this you would think the majority of them are stable homes that would provide a good home for a child and 
You're talking about avenues to help, you know, reverse poverty. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could find solutions through this kind of thing. Exactly. And in fact, even I know sometimes we hear from families who are thinking about adopting a teen, but say, but I haven't been able to save for 18 years for college. Well, most states provide some kind of either waiver or or financial um, assistance for college for kids who have been in foster care or who have been adopted from foster care. And and you're right, you said something about there are are national tax incentives, there are state-based tax incentives for families that adopt. So if it's that financial piece that's um, keeping them from thinking about adopting, we've got lots of resources we can turn people to. If it's just a, a little bit of uncertainty about jumping into the child welfare system, you know, I don't know, I'm afraid the family might try and come back and, and claim this child, or, you know, there's a lot of things that I just don't know about. We can help with that, too. Again, these children have been permanently and legally severed from their family of birth so that the parents can never try and legally reclaim these children. That's not to say if they're older kids that they don't have a connection to extended family members, if they're safe. That's still up to the adoptive family to, to make sure those connections stay sound. We can help walk them through. We've got a beginner's guide to adoption on the website that helps walk people through what are the 10 most common steps from point of entry into an adoption agency to that final adoption hearing in court. What are those steps so we can start to demystify uh, the unknown about the child welfare system? And we just encourage people to dig in. You're right. There are lots of people out there, I think, that if they knew more about it, if they understood who these children were, they would jump in with both feet and begin to get more information. So that's what we want to encourage. The times are kind of turbulent. You know, the, the affordable housing situation is getting pretty frightening these days, and it's a, it's a tough time to be a, an older kid slash young adult. Being on your own doing that without the safety net of family. You know, your car breaks, you're, you're 19 and you aged out of foster care. You found a way to get a job, you found a way to, to get into some kind of housing, and then your car breaks down and you lose your job because you don't want to share with your employer the, the challenges that you're having and suddenly you're homeless uh, because, because housing is so expensive. So I think the best we can do for these young adults is to make sure they've got that safety net of family. Look, we're all probably going to be struggling a little bit financially over the next few years, but imagine being out on your own at 17, 18, 19 and trying to figure that out without some place to just say, I need to stay here for a few weeks, Mom. I need to stay here. I need you to help me with my car, Dad. You know, whatever it is, we, we, those kids deserve that and we owe it to them. Talking with Rita Sornan, President and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Anything else you'd like to add? I think just that, again, if, if anyone is thought about it, but they they sort of self-selected out for whatever reason. We welcome those phone calls. We welcome getting people connected to resources. It's a, it, it is some work to get through the process of, of uh, the, the classes that you're required to take and home studies and getting matched with a child, but the end result is absolutely worth the effort. And with so many amazing, creative, talented, young people waiting for uh, homes. It feels like a community obligation among all the challenges that we have every day. There's nothing more important than family and community and and making sure that we have safe and thriving children. And what's the website again? It's uh, DaveThomasFoundation.org. Okay, Rita Sornan, she's the president and CEO. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. 
you're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared, I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Clay Gordon. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This is the first time in American history that a constitutional right has been taken We sat down with some of the black women of Columbus. What they are doing as the country deals with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Plus, the housing crisis does not seem to be slowing down. City leaders plan to bring more affordable housing to Columbus. And breaking down the big budget, how your tax dollars could be used this year. Thanks for joining us on Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon. Tracy Townsend has the day off. States have full responsibility in deciding abortion rights laws, and tensions still remain high. Well, this morning, we sit down with two Columbus organizations for a better picture of who is most impacted from the Supreme Court decision. But first, prosecutors from across the country say they will not be prosecuting abortions. The Columbus City Attorney also joined in to send a similar message. That led us to ask... Who will be tasked with enforcing the law and how? Well, so far, we know local law enforcement is making plans to investigate these cases. Now that abortions are mostly illegal after six weeks of pregnancy, it would be considered a fifth-degree felony. Well, here's what Brian Steele with the local FOP had to say in part, quote, As in all felony criminal cases, law enforcement officers investigate, charge if probable cause exists, and turn over the case to the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office. I imagine... Many law enforcement agencies in the state are reviewing new law with their legal departments for guidance. 
we did reach out to the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office, and we were told Gary Tyak had no comments on this. We also talked again to Zach Klein. He said while his office does not prosecute felonies, he still wanted to take his own stance known and make it known because of any future changes to this law. I don't see my role as a city attorney uh, to be in the doctor's office uh, between a patient and a doctor. That's personal and, frankly, none of my business. When you look at the future of post-row world, we don't know what the legislature is going to do. And, in fact, some legislation that has been presented in the past does have misdemeanor conduct. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says abortion-related cases will be, quote, the lowest possible priority, end quote, from the mayor. TNTV spoke with these two women. Christy Angel is the president of the YWCA Columbus and Maureen Stapleton, the executive director of Celebrate One. Both local leaders say our community should be focused on next steps when it comes to the historic Supreme Court decision. Choice for us is this. It's not about pro-abortion or, or being against abortion. Choice is about an individual's right to make the choices they need to make, the individual needs to make for their life, their body, their circumstance. And we don't believe, we believe that people should have choice. That's, that is, that's the foundation of our organization, choice in where they live, choice in where they work, choice in who they love, you know, their choices. And um, so obviously this decision, while we knew that we, you know, we had the, the leaked document and we knew that this was, uh, decision that was probably coming down from the courts, it still, you know, I think rocked all of us, shocked all of us. Um, we had a lot of emotion, you know, emotion turns in some ways to to anger because of feelings uh, that uh, a right that we felt that we had for so long. Uh, now we do not, we've been told we do not have that right. And at the same time, um, we are an organization of that moves from, you know, the shock and awe and all that we have to now move to, we have to have a bias towards action. It is incumbent on all of us to find as many creative ways as we possibly can uh, to impact this because abortions don't go away. 17% of the states of abortions happen in Franklin County. Again, when you look at the urban cores and uh, those counties, it's the majority. But at the end of the day, all 3,400 babies aren't just going to be birthed. People are going to make some decisions. And we have literally rolled back to a time when people did things to their bodies versus having the appropriate care. That is what is so dis- disarming and uh, unsettling yes. uh, about the court decision. This is the first time in American history that a constitutional right has been taken away. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what the Constitution does. It gives rights, doesn't mm-hmm. take it away. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, abortions aren't going to stop. Safe and healthy abortions are going to stop. The majority of the women who choose to make this choice, and it's a tough choice to make, right, are 20 to 29 years of age. They're not under 19. They're not young people. Actually, in the next largest group is 20 or 30 to 39. So between 20 and 39, and these are the same people for the last 20 years who have not had proper education on the appropriate sexual health education that most kids get across this country. That's a decision that is a policy decision 
that has impacted our outcomes. Stapleton says Ohio is the only state in the country that does not have a health education policy. This means federal grants cannot be used to pay for sex education in K-12 schools. According to the Children's Defense Fund of Ohio, it's the only subject area without standards in Ohio. Both the YWCA and Celebrate One offer family planning resources. These are just some of the resources people in our community have access to. Just head to ywcacolumbus.org. We spoke with leaders on both sides of the aisle about resources their groups offer to people impacted by this ruling. If you are looking for ultrasounds or pregnancy tests, make sure that the facility that you go to is a licensed medical provider, such as a Planned Parenthood or another licensed family planning, or a federally qualified health center a county health department, someplace that is regulated and licensed and bound by HIPAA regulations. That is critically important at this time. Um, Reach out to Women Have Options. um, Reach out to an abortion clinic. Someone should be able to direct you to resources to help you get the care that you need. The pro-life movement has a 50-year, a proud 50-year history of helping women in need on the ground in all 88 counties in Ohio. We have over 150 pregnancy centers in Ohio. We provide diapers, formula, prenatal care, car seats, cribs, clothing, parenting classes, not just to mom, but the birth father as well. We've done that not just recently, but we've done it for decades in the state of Ohio. Ohio Right to Life, we're an advocacy organization. Every year, we advocate for millions of dollars to go to help women, whether it be for their health care or prenatal care. We are the only social conservative organization in Ohio that stood up and said we needed Medicaid expansion back in 2011 when Governor Mike, excuse me, when Governor John Kasich advocated for it. We stood up and we said, yes, it's the right thing to do. All people, including women who are low income um, or severe poverty, should have just the same access to health care as I do or you do. The returning of Roe v. Wade has some people rethinking their family planning options. We're talking about birth control. You might remember Justice Clarence Thomas suggested the court could rethink past decisions, including a case regarding contraceptives. NTV spoke with medical professionals as the demand for all forms of birth control increases. I think it's necessary for people to take it seriously. Um, and it scares me because this feels like not you know, the America that I grew up with, it's, it's totally different. Still legal. You can still get contraception. You can still get the long acting reversible contraceptives. You can still get a, a, what used to be called a tubal ligation. The medical professionals encourage patients to remain calm right now when it comes to obtaining contraception in the state. The goal as to not is to rather to not overwhelm the system. But the doctors do say do not wait to talk with your health care provider. Meanwhile, the reversal of Roe v. Wade has churches in our area talking. NTV's Ashley Bornanson caught up with pastors who say they are just trying to navigate mixed emotions right now in their congregations. I'm very disturbed and concerned when I hear that the right of a person to be able to do it, even to make that choice, has been taken away because I see it in the context of other rights which are then put in jeopardy. Pastor Dexter Wise of Faith Ministries Church in Columbus says he does not believe the reversal of Roe v. Wade was a good idea. I really don't think that people have thought all the way through what happens when they take this right away. I don't think they've thought through what's going to happen to the exceptions that no longer exist for some people. He fears the country does not have a system in place to support women 
and children. What are we going to do in terms of funding? What are we going to do in terms of education? What are we going to do instead of creating more prisons and uh, create more daycare centers? But the faith community is torn. I think this has put all of us in a position where no one can hide anymore. It's not at the Supreme Court we can hide behind. It's at the state level where we all now have to speak and advocate for what we believe. Down the street, Pastor David Forbes of Columbus Christian Center supports the decision to overturn Roe, saying that The women that I have spoken with as a pastor who have had abortions, I cannot, out of those women, I cannot think of one who did not feel extreme and grave guilt, shame, and regret. His church is working to help support the women who have had abortions and minister to those who are considering having one. I believe it's it's going to be a challenge of your life either way. And so therefore, the church, this church, a real church, would be present to help you with that decision no matter what. 10TV's Ashley Bornanson reporting there. She says both pastors told her they've received support from their congregations, though they are on opposite sides of this court's decision. They encourage everyone to show compassion and support for each other as the nation navigates this time. Some Ohioans are worried about the increase of gun violence in Columbus. Ahead, we break down how city leaders plan to keep everyone safe. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. U.S. Congress members passed a sweeping gun safety bill, which has officially been signed into law. It's the first of its kind in decades. The Safer Communities Act passed with bipartisan support, including from Ohio Senator Rob Portman. It aims to limit access to guns in younger populations, as well as those who have committed acts of domestic violence. But just how will the new legislation impact central Ohioans? We took that question to City of Columbus Attorney Zach Klein. There's going to be a problem, frankly, here in Ohio because of the, some of the prohibitions that exist that the state legislature has put on uh, cities like Columbus and Cincinnati and Cleveland that may want to institute a red flag law. I'm hoping that get cooler, more common sense heads will prevail. We'll see the opportunity to get federal funding to get the hands out of dangerous people who have no business uh, owning a firearm. Meanwhile, there is a new focus on getting guns off the streets of central Ohio. Right now, police are dealing with record-setting homicide rates and several recent shootings. City leaders are sharing their plan and a plea to state lawmakers. 10TV's Lacey Crisp takes a look, a closer look, at the next steps. Most of these moms know all too well the impact of gun violence. I would say about 98% of us have been affected by gun violence. Which is why they were invited when Columbus City leaders discussed plans to curb gun violence. Well, I'm very cautiously optimistic, and I think that I love the effort that's being put forth. So far, Columbus police have recovered 1,500 guns. In 2021, 91% of the homicides in Columbus involved guns. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther is calling on the state legislature to pass restrictive gun laws. The state house continues to move in the wrong direction. Stand your ground. Now permitless carry, putting our very officers' lives at risk more than ever before. 
More guns, less training, fewer permits are precisely what we do not need. Ginther has allocated $250,000 for city prosecutors to work with the U.S. Attorney's Office to prosecute the most violent gun offenders. City Attorney Zach Klein is also calling on judges to seriously consider bond for those suspects who use guns. And we need our judges to to step up when it comes to violent offenders and people who have no regard for human life. And it's happening too much in our community, and we have to draw the line and put the pressure on the judges to make a difference here. Columbus Police Chief Elaine Bryant says a partnership with the ATF has also worked to trace guns faster, linking crimes to additional crimes and getting suspects behind bars. I'm wondering, especially as we've had some high-profile incidents involving teenagers, some homicides even, uh, where those teenagers in particular are getting the guns. That's that's a very good question, which is why we're tracking it and why it's so important that we're part of that correlation center. I definitely think it's going to make a difference. I think just even the awareness behind it, before my son was murdered, I wouldn't have listened to this. I wouldn't have been invested in this because it didn't hit my doorstep. So on our end, we want to make sure don't let it hit your doorstep before you become invested. Chief Bryan told 10TV's Lacey Chris there that there was a long backlog to tracing guns. She says they can now run the tests and get results within just a couple of days, which helps investigators solve cases. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says Columbus is behind other cities when it comes to affordable housing. It's why the mayor is urging voters to approve more spending. Chief investigative reporter Bennett Haberly is asking the tough questions about how his plan will work. This lot, 1034 West Broad Street, with its razor wire and a violation notice about tall grass and weeds, is expected to be replaced by new affordable housing for seniors. We believe that housing is at the core. If you, if you do any research, many folks believe housing is the great vaccine. Mayor Andrew Genther is touting this multi-million dollar project as part of a larger public policy push, which starts by asking voters this fall to approve a billion dollar bond package. $200 million would be dedicated to housing. But I can't help be struck by the irony that in recent weeks, we've also torn down a homeless camp. So how does that sit with you? The fact that, you know, we're literally keep kicking people out of places who don't have homes and then borrowing millions of dollars to build homes back up. Well, and that's why we think this is so important. We believe that everybody uh, that is homeless ought to have housing. And that's why McKinley Manor is so important and a place that potentially folks that were in that camp or in other camps uh, can come off the land, get the supportive uh, uh, treatment that they need, the services they need uh, to live in a safe, affordable place. What do you think about that? I think it's crap because they got one building right down here on Glenwood. They ain't even done yet. And what's the bet going to be on that? Seven, eight, nine hundred dollars a month. People want fixed income, cannot afford them. Casey Strobel is a disabled veteran. He tells me he was evicted while living in a house here in the bottoms of Franklinton. The project proposal for McKinley Manor shows projected rent would range from $437 to $820. The upper range would be too costly for those like Casey. No matter, you can't stop progress. It's the affordable of it is what counts. Strobel told me gentrification in this area is making it harder for folks to pay rent. There's also violence to consider. One block over from this proposed housing project, there have been two murders in the last five years and more than two dozen within a half mile of here, according to a 10 Investigates review of homicide data. We still have a problem with violence in the city. We still got police who are only able to make one out of every two arrests of murders. Our, our, uh, you know, our goal and our vision is become the smart, uh, safest big city in the country. 
country. We're not there yet. But we did have the largest reduction in violence from 2017 to 2018 based on the first comprehensive neighborhood safety strategy. We have seen a 40 percent reduction in the homicides and violence from last year to this year. So it's important to tell the whole story. Rich people don't have no problem. Come to people like me on Social Security or elderly people or people that disabled. Where we stay at? Affordable appears to be a subjective term in a debate where everyone agrees housing is necessary and may help address other issues. In Franklinton, Bennett Haverly, 10 TV News. Ten investigates found campaign finance records show the president of the company that is building, McKinley Manor, has donated $48,000 to Mayor Ginther's campaign since 2017. The mayor's office says those donations have, quote, no bearing whatsoever on this project, end quote. Well, this morning, doctors are working to learn more about the first case of monkeypox in Columbus. Why doctors say you shouldn't be worried just yet. Teachers shape the future. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who'll make preventing pandemics their life's work. Sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who'll help combat climate change and generating possibilities for a student who'll be the first in their family to graduate college. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. U.S. Supreme Court leaders officially swore on the first black woman as a justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Here's that very moment. I, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will support and defend the Constitution. Jackson takes the place of Justice Stephen Breyer. She's now the 104th Supreme Court Justice to be sworn in. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled a high school football coach in Washington State who prayed in the middle of the field is protected by the First Amendment. More than two decades ago, though, a similar case divided a central Ohio community. TV's Kevin Landers talked to the coach whose case pitted community versus religious beliefs. We prayed in the locker room before the game. I never denied any of that. We prayed with the team afterwards on the field. Parents came out and joined us. It's been more than two decades since David Dobbenmeyer blended religion with coaching at London High School. I would say, hey, fellas, for me, here's the scripture of the week. But his passion for the Bible as a public school employee would result in a lawsuit that he said eventually made him walk away from the game. Shame on me. I took some of these wayward kids to church, invited them to church on my free time and on their free time, right? I'm trying to say I tried to indoctrinate, force religion down his throat, and made kids pray. Oh, these... Dobbenmeyer's case was settled out of court with no finding against him. More than two decades later, he says, seeing the U.S. Supreme Court side with a football coach for Bremerton, Washington, and get the victory he didn't get, makes him feel proud. What went through your mind? I was right. I felt, I felt somewhat vindicated. The ACLU sued the London School District, saying by allowing the coaching staff to lead prayers with players was a violation of the separation of church and state. And when you are a public school employee, when you are a police officer, when you are a firefighter, when you work for the county sewer district or whatever else, you are government. 
The ACLU believes Monday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling could open the door to allow prayer in schools. Nice, you don't push your religious beliefs on other people, and you especially don't do it on a captive audience that you have control over, as is in the case with a coach or player or a teacher or a student. As for Dave Dobbenmeyer, he says he misses coaching, but has no regrets about his religious coaching style. I never, I never forced the first kid to ever, ever say a prayer. Kevin Landers, 10 TV News. Since 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court says public school employees may not engage students in religious activities without violating the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Columbus Public Health confirmed the first case of monkeypox in Columbus. Public Health says the case is a 48-year-old man and he is isolating. Health officials continue to say that the risk to the general public is low. Based on our initial investigation thus far, we don't believe there are any close contacts, um, but we're still investigating, and the threat to the general public is very low. Um, But we want people to understand that monkeypox is in the United States and has arrived in Ohio, and now it has arrived in Columbus. The illness typically lasts two to four weeks. And just in time for summer, another state park is coming to Ohio. ODNR broke ground on the Great Council State Park. Well, this park, just north of Xenia, will be a connection to Ohio's Native American and pioneer past. The area was once home to Old Town, one of the largest known Shawnee settlements in Ohio. This is it's going to be a very, very special place. Um, and it really is going to tell a story that I think... We've heard parts of the story. We hope to have as much of the story here uh, as we can. The park will include an interpretive center featuring exhibits and a gallery honoring Shawnee tribes. Three recognized tribes are working on the center. It will open up in 2023. I want to say thank you for being here with us today. I'm Clay Gordon in for Tracy Townsend. And remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Clay Gordon, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy Townsend with a preview of what's on this morning at 1130 on 10-TV. Coming up on Face the State, what you're paying for gas and groceries. We hear you. It's too much these days. We're asking what the president and other lawmakers are doing to keep cash in our pockets. A speedier way to track repeat criminals and cut crime. We'll show you how technology is taking on accuracy and efficiency of background checks. And we're following the fallout of Roe v. Wade as it continues with a push to sue for unintended pregnancy. We'll see you on Face the State at 1130 this morning. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide, in their families, in their communities, in their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Kayla Griffin. She is the state director for All Voting is Local. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what All Voting is Local is. Yeah, so we are a state-based organization housed out of D.C. We're in eight different states. I'm the director for Ohio. We are an organization that looks to remove the barriers to the ballots for people and help them navigate the systems of voting in their state. Okay, and uh, we've got uh, the the second half of Ohio's primary coming up on Tuesday, August 2nd. This has been kind of complicated for Ohio this year. To say the least. So I want to um, stress that we are actually in election season. We have election day on August 2nd, but early voting folks can go to their local board of elections and actually cast a ballot. Okay, and this is, as I mentioned, part two of the primary. The The first part of it was in May that involved uh, some races and issues, but this one involves different ones. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, so because we weren't able to get um, maps that we agreed upon on the state level, we had to push push the election back. Maps, I'm referring to the redistricting process. This is the process um, after the census that... Uh, states have to go and they draw new maps for um, their legislative and congressional districts. Ohio was among, I think we were the only ones that did not agree on maps and we had to split our primary. And so folks went out and they voted in May, but they may have noticed that their state rep and their state senator weren't on the ballot. That's because we did not have maps for those seats. When they go to the election box, either next week during early voting or on August 2nd, they will find that only the state reps and their state senators and maybe one person, you know, is still a primary, so they have to decide whether or not or what party they're voting on. They'll find that it's also like um, one of the party affiliation seats as well. Uh, But no issues will be on the ballot this election, Um, just it's primarily the state reps and the state Senate seat. It's kind of a shame that this has happened because, you know, some of these candidates probably will feel like they didn't get a fair shot because they didn't have uh, this primary, you know, during the main voting time in May. And in August, a lot of people might be on vacation. We're not going to get a true representative of the voting body unless, you know, we get a tremendous uh, turnout with early voting. Yeah, well, that's why we're on the phone with you today. We are trying to make sure that people turn out the vote even early. We want to make sure that we keep the numbers up um, even on our early voting. But I mean, I think the whole uh, primary process has been a little muddled uh, by the politics of the the line drawing that even our May primary was like the turnout was very low across our states, uh, across our state. And um, we're trying to change that. We're trying to let people know that there is a second primary. Um, but, you know, we're working, we're pushing a, a boulder up the hill here. And so we typically have August uh 
set aside for special elections. A lot of people don't often, you know, go out for special elections, but this is still a very important primary that we should, um, we should, you know, talk to people. We should ask our friends. We should take somebody with us to early vote. We should take, you know, a, a family member um, on election day. We should really get involved in the process. And the more that we get involved and the more that we talk about it, the better the turnout will be. Talking with Kayla Griffin, she's the state director for All Voting is Local. And this whole mess with the redistricting process is still a mess because it still hasn't been settled. These uh, district maps were put in place by a federal judge, but they they were rejected by the Ohio Supreme Court as not being fair, gerrymandered by Republicans. So this is a fight that's going to continue after this election. Yeah, unfortunately, it will. Interestingly enough, um, Ohioans back in, I think it was 2018, 2015, we came out um, by and large and said that we wanted a bipartisan process for drawing our maps. Um, Over 80% of Ohioans, that's the whole state, regardless of where you sit, regardless of what color lines you have, um, 80% of Ohioans said that we wanted a fair bipartisan uh, process to map drawing. And what we have seen is that the map process has not been fair. It has not been bipartisan. Uh, The Supreme Court has continued to reject partisan gerrymandered maps and you know we were really surprised that the federal court stepped in um, because this is a state issue and so because we have not have not come to an agreement on 10-year maps we will have to do this process again in a few years is there a better way to do this is there a state that is doing this that's not controversial that everybody seems to be on the same page with You know, I don't know. There are a lot of states that are reeling, um, trying to figure out how to be fair and equitable in their map-making process. Um, We know that, like, North Carolina has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court already on their map-making process. Texas is really reeling as well, trying to figure out how to do this right and properly. Ohio, we this is the first time that we've done this bipartisan commission. And so we did we had to expect and, you know, anticipate that there will be some hiccups. But what we did not anticipate was that some of our lawmakers would ignore our constitution. The constitution that um millions of voters in Ohio voted on to change the constitution that we hold so dear to um, our way of life and living. And so it has just completely been ignored. Um, And what we need to do is make sure that the courts are fair, make sure that our our elected officials that are sitting on the, the sit on this commission, they are actually following the rule of law. Um, This is an unprecedented time where we literally just, you know, throw out the rules and how we map uh, map out our state and just, you know, submit anything. Um, And so uh, Ohio is the only state that has a second primary. Every other state in our um, nation was able to get it together and figure it out in order to pull off one primary. But Ohio, you know, we, we weren't able to um, beat the muster here. And so we're, we're showing up to the ballot boxes, you know, today, tomorrow, next week, or on August 2nd to make sure that our voices are heard. Talking with Kayla Griffin, state director for All Voting is Local. So again, for folks uh, with this election coming up, the actual uh, election day, Tuesday, August 2nd, but early voting in place, how do you recommend that folks do this and how can they find out more information? 
Yeah. So if you are one who votes and wants to vote in person, you can show up to your board of elections. So you, wherever, whatever county you live in, you go to your board of election, you take your ID, and you go in and you cast your ballot. If you would like to vote from the comfort of your home, we still have no excuse absentee ballot. So you can fill out an application. You can get that right off of um, your county's website or the, the Secretary of State's website. I'll give that to your voter, uh, your listeners as well. The Secretary of State's website, you can go to voteohio.gov. You can get an application for your ballot. You can also pull a sample ballot um, from your county's website and see who's on the ballot. Some people, you know, might be a little confused about what they're voting on, but you can always pull a sample ballot to see who's on the ballot. You can vote early or you can vote on Election Day on August 2nd. Okay, Kayla Griffin again. She is with All Voting is Local, the state director for Ohio. Thanks so much for the information today. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.